as Mo prayed, this week has been an amazing uh, week for my wife and I. Um, we have, yeah, we've been waiting and praying uh, for nine years for children. Uh, we've been in the adoption process uh, since January 2012. And Monday, um, we got a call and uh, our daughter was born um, uh, a few weeks ago. She's premature, so she's still in Columbus, Georgia. We were just out there with her this morning. Um, and we drove back, and I love you all, but once I'm done, um, yeah, we're going to get some rest um, and go back home. Reggie, can you show this? I'm going to be a proud dad, so um, he's all right. He's still working. Uh, you'll see that later. Um You'll actually hear about her probably 40 times in this message, um, just because that's, that's Ava, yeah, Ava Leo, so, yeah, on cloud nine, I'm that dad now, every one of my friends are like, pictures, John, you never take them, but I, yeah, I do, I'm that dad now, but we have things to do, y'all didn't come here to see her. Um, you came here to hear about Jesus, and I'm excited to share him with you. Let's pray, and let's ask for the Lord's help, and we'll dive right in. Father, um, yeah, we come to you now, and uh, we thank you for the life that you purchased for us by your death, Lord. Father, we thank you that we know that the common ground that all of us have here um, is that one day all of us won't be here, Father. Our lives are headed um, to an end. The destiny for all of us is the same, Father. Um, and I pray that today we would reflect on the goodness of Jesus, Lord, that we would be reminded that our faith is not about ideologies or wise sayings or pithy statements, but our faith centers around an event, and that event is what we celebrate today and every Sunday when we gather as a church, the fact that your son took our death, but he didn't stay in our grave. He rose, Father. I pray that we would rejoice in that truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so like I said last week, uh, this has been an emotional week for me on a bunch of fronts, um, and I think it, it, it really struck a chord inside of me Friday morning, um, April the 14th, 2015, um, I got a call that my older brother died, and for those of y'all that have been here, y'all know this, he took his last breath on, on that day, and um, April the 14th was Good Friday as we reflect on the death of Christ and the life that he brought. April the 14th, um, I was in the hospital at 8 a.m. holding Ava, um, and she had been on an oxygen ma machine since she was born because she couldn't breathe on her own. And the doctor came in, and he said, today's the day that she breathes on her own. And so they take it out, and she takes her first breath. And as I'm sitting there, it just all of these 
tears start to come out as I try to talk to her about Sam. And it's just crazy how on the very day that my brother took his last breath, she takes her first breath and And we rejoiced, and I was sitting there crying, and it hit me that it was like, I'm not sure if these are tears of joy or tears of sadness, that they both kind of came out, and I was unable to parse out which one was which, and just reminded of the fact that death and life are two sides of the same coin, right? That we can't just think of life. That as much as I wanted to just think about her life and rejoice in what God has done, as soon as they took the oxygen out of her nose, I just felt on the inside, what if she doesn't make it? And gripped with this fear. And as I looked at her, all I thought about is, as much as I'm grateful that each breath is going to help her grow stronger and she's going to grow old, each breath that she takes is one less than the allotted amount that God gave her. There's no way to parse that out. Death and life are two sides of the same coin. And even if you haven't been in the same scenario that I have, you know that to be true. We're in a room right now, and there's lots of y'all in this room that I know, and there's a bunch of y'all in this room that I don't know. And I was taught a long time ago that if you want to start a dialogue with somebody, the very first thing that you have to do is to find common ground. Now, with all of us in this room, it would be hard for me up here to find that with all of us here. Some of us enjoy meat. Some of us are vegetarians. Bless your hearts. (laughs) Some of us like sports. Some of us don't like sports. Some of us are married, some aren't, some have kids, some, you get it. Here's the common ground. When we think about the common ground, the thing that knits us all here in this room, it's going to sound morbid, but it's this. The common ground for us is not any piece of land that we stand on, It is the land that will stand on top of us when we lie on our backs one day. The common ground that we all have is that one day we'll be put in a box six feet below the earth. And we sit here and write all the joy that comes from man. Easter, I put on my best clothes. I'm getting ready to come out here. And now you want to talk about death. Whenever we talk about death, it seems like it's a mood killer. But I want you to know that's not the case at all. We can't forget about death because if we forget about it and act like it's not there, then we're going to get blindsided one day and it's going to hurt. But if we act like death is around every corner, we won't really live the life that God had placed right in front of us. And so for all of us that are here that are concerned with what it means to have a full life, That's what God's word does for us, and that's the journey that I want to take us on. But the point that I want to make that'll just serve as the backdrop, if this were a song, think of this as the hook for the song, and that's this. Your outlook on death affects the quality of life. 
Your outlook on death affects the quality of your life. If you will turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, we've been here for the course of the past few months. It's written by somebody that, if he's not Solomon himself, wants you to think of him. It's a wisdom book. This is a book that's all about living. His concern with this book is that he sees a bunch of people that are existing. And he writes this book so as to serve as a big no loitering sign to hang on the front of your life. Don't just hang around. Don't just live aimlessly. Really live. But as he talks about life 37 times through the book, he's going to use this word vanity, meaningless. And he knows as well as you and I do that life is frustrating. The Hebrew word that he uses is a word that sounds like the name Abel. Y'all remember that story in the Bible, Cain and Abel? The first four people you meet in the Bible, Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. Adam and Eve and Cain sin. Abel doesn't. At the end of chapter four, the only person that you see that dies is Abel. And he's brutally murdered. So here you have three people that did wrong, and it seems like that Their life goes on, and this guy that didn't do anything wrong, and he dies, and the point that he consistently wants to drive here in this book is, that's what life feels like, isn't it? I do right, but I don't get rewarded, and people that do wrong live. And so here's what he does. In this book that's aimed to talk about how you and I live our fullest life, Solomon is going to talk about death a whole lot. But he's going to do it in such a way where this, he, he doesn't want us to forget about death because if we forget about it, it's going to affect the quality of our life because we're going to live like it's not there. But he doesn't want us to fixate on it because if we do, we'll be scared and we'll live our life on eggshells. He wants us to have a healthy outlook on death. Your outlook on death affects the quality of your life. Ecclesiastes 9, chapter 1, or or verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and here's the first point. Death is in your future. Death is in your future. I can say that pretty confidently about all of us here in this room. 9, 1 through 6. As I get into this and I read this, Think of this as as primer on a wall that you're preparing to paint. That if you want to paint a wall and see that paint stick and enjoy the paint, the very first thing that you have to do is to prime that wall first. That's all that he does here. He's just priming the wall. Death is in your future. Nine, uh, starting in verse one, it says this. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. All he says is, by the way that our lives go, it's hard for us to know if God is really for us or against us. That's what he's trying to start off right here. Because people that are both good and bad die. 
that if you judge God's goodness by how long that you live, as you look out at life, it's going to be pretty hard to determine who, who he's for or against because it doesn't seem like there's a rhyme or a reason to the way that folks die. Verse 2. It's the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event, that's death, happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. What he says here is, it's frustrating because all die. People that go to church each week and the Easter saints, no shout out, no shade to all those that are just here on Easter, people that are addicted to drugs, and people that stay away from soda because they're trying to live longer, people that pay their tithes or people that pay prostitutes. It doesn't matter what distinction that you make. He's saying everybody dies. Chris Rock had a bit about this years ago where he said, I've got a horoscope for everybody. Gemini, you're going to die. Aquarius, you're going to die. Cancer, you're going to die. Sagittarius, you're going to die. And on and on. It's the same point that he makes here. Death is in all of our futures. And in verse 3, he says this. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. When he says madness is in their heart, here's what he means. God controls all of our outcomes, but by the way that life goes, everybody justifies a reason why they don't do what God says that they should do. Ecclesiastes 8 says this, that he looks out and he sees bad guys didn't get Justice, and do you know what that does when bad guys get off the hook? It makes us feel like, I'm tired, I don't want to do good, I should just do what they do. Here in Ecclesiastes 9, what he says is, all right, it's not just that bad guys get off the hook, but good guys don't get rewarded. And what he's saying is that different response births the same thing in all of our hearts. Frustration evil. I don't want God being in control. So he talks about this death, but this death that comes into the world, the fact that all of us are going to die and God is in control of all of that. Do you know what that does to the human heart? It makes them mad and upset that God is in control and that he sets the rules and we don't. And so what we do is we turn our backs on God and do what we want to do the same way Adam and Eve did when God tried to set the rules in the garden. And he says, it's madness. 
the God that's in control, that gives us our life, that keeps our life, it's madness and it's foolish for us to turn our back from him. But yet the consistent thing with all of us in here is that we all do this. Death is in our future. Death is in the world according to the Bible because of sin. The sin that exists in all of our hearts. But look here at verse 4. Verse 4, he starts to change things with this one word, but. He says this, but. He who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Here's what I mean by this is just the primer on the wall. He tells us death is in our future, not to make us fixate on death, but to be reminded of the advantages of living. Death, look, death does quiet down, folks. But he's saying, as long as you are alive, there's hope. And and this phrase, a, a, a live dog is better than a dead lion. Back in these days, uh, dogs weren't pets. People didn't go around trying to kiss their dogs in the mouth, right? Uh And if that's you right now, you probably shouldn't do that either. But people didn't do that. Dogs were these pests. People stayed away from them. People didn't like them. They were on the bottom of the totem pole. And the lion was majestic. But what he's saying is, look, even a meager, ordinary, discarded life is better than the most majestic death. Because they're dead, verse 5. For the living know that, that they will die and we can do something about it, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. What he says is this, when death takes place, it erases the memory of people. They're gone. They don't affect what goes on in this world, nor do they get a reward from what goes on in this world. Michael Jackson made millions off of his music after he died, but he didn't get a royalty check. Do you know why? Because he's gone. His monopoly piece is off of the board. He's not factored into what goes on here. But those that are living, if you're here and you're frustrated with the life that you have right now, or you feel like, man, I'd be better off dead, you're mad at the cards that you've been dealt and you felt like you have the most meager of of lives, we're reminded here Death is in your future. It's coming, but it's not here yet. There's still hope as long as we're breathing, as long as God has still sustained us. Wherever you are, if you're sick, if you're frustrated, if you're hurting, God has left you here. There still is hope. In his providence, you're here today to hear from His word, God wants you to know that there is still hope. Death is in your future. 
It's not here yet if you can still hear those words. You are alive. There is time for you to change things. Listen, knowing death is in our future, then how do we live again? He doesn't want us to forget about death because if we forget about death, we'll act like it's not there and we'll get blindsided. But then in the same vein, he doesn't want us to fixate on it and to feel like death is around every corner. Because it's not. It is, death can be around any corner, but it's not around every corner. Listen to the advice that he gives, and it's going to, it, it, it may feel counterintuitive to how you thought of Christianity or what the Bible says is the way that we should live our lives. If point one if, is death is your future, point two is this. Enjoyment in the here and now is your fortune. Enjoyment is your fortune. And here's what I mean by fortune. Um, if you go to a Chinese restaurant, they'll give you these fortune cookies, uh, which is really uh, paper stuffed inside flavored cardboard. And you gnaw, right? You gnaw through the cardboard and you get your fortune. And what it is, is it's this command. It's something that tells you the way in which you should live in the meantime. There's things that'll come in your future but your fortune is meant to tell you how it is that you live right now. And, and the beauty of what we get here is it's not in a stale cookie. It's in God's living word. Listen to what he says to all those that are alive. Verse 7. I'm going to read verse 7 through 10. Go. Eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. That phrase is just used for life here on earth. Ten. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going, to which you will spend your future, but in the here and now. And this is what I love. He says, because death is coming and you're not there yet, do you know what God has provided for you to do in this life? Enjoy it. Look at this text. Look at the words that he gives here. Go, eat, drink, let, enjoy. All of those are commands. They're not suggestions. If y'all had a mom like I did, right, my mom would say, John, you should go and clean your room. And I'll say, Mom, I didn't want to go and clean my room. And she says, oh, John, you must have thought that I was asking you or providing a suggestion. That's not what I was doing. I was commanding you to get up and to go and to clean your room. In the same vein, look, look, look. These are commands. Look, you're living. Go. Get up. 
stop, stop nursing bitterness and anger and being petty. Stop complaining and making excuses. Go. Look, eat. Eat your bread with joy. There's two different ways that folks can be fed. Right now, my daughter is being fed. Yeah, I told you she'd come up. Right now, my daughter's being fed uh, through a tube while she learns how to take a bottle. She's functionally being fed. She can't taste any of the stuff that goes through. She just knows, I want food, and now I'm full. God's, one of God's great kindnesses to us is candy, is, is sugar, is food. Listen, listen, listen. And I know that it doesn't sound spiritual, but right now what he's saying is, look, enjoy. Eat your bread with joy. Have a good meal every once in a while. Go and spend more on food than you would every once in a while. If you're frugal, by choice or because you're in college, supersize it every once in a while. If you're buying food for somebody else that needs food, give them a 10-piece, right? Don't skimp on the value. Go eat. Listen, 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 listen. Drink, right? Your drink of choice. Get the goods up. Well, my drink of choice is coffee. Don't waste your time on Starbucks. Get the good stuff, right? Go to counterculture. Go to Condessa. Get some good stuff, right? Eat with joy. And, but listen, when he says here, God has already uh, uh, proved your works, what he means is simply this. Listen, it was his idea to begin with. When we think of God's first words in the Bible, the first things that we think of are the restrictions that he gave. Don't eat of this tree. And we miss the fact that God made all of these trees. And the first thing that he says was eat freely and enjoy. This is God's common grace uh, across the board. As long as we are alive, there is enjoyment that we can be that can be had here. Verse eight, let your garments be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Wear your Easter suit somewhere else than church. Find a good place to dress up. Zach, I'm looking at you. You got a gray suit on, bro. Look, enjoy the life that God has provided. This This is just baseline, common grace things that God gives to us. Verse 9, enjoy the wife or life. With the wife, singular, whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toilet, which you toil under the sun. One of God's great gifts to us is marriage. One of the easiest things that can take place is that through the course of time, as you start to spend time with your wife or your spouse and there's so much to do, go back through your text messages 
And look at the text of you and your friends and how many GIFs and uh, emojis and LOLs there are. Look at the ones between you and your spouse and how it can go from who needs to get the kids. Did you pay this bill? Did you do this? And this is just a reminder that God does give us our spouses and marriage to take care of things, to be productive in this world. But he also gives them to us for our enjoyment. Take your wife out on a date. Pursue her. Make her feel beautiful and loved. Fellas, if you don't have a wife yet, and there's so much more that can be said about all of this, but don't overcomplicate things. Find a woman that you can love, that loves the Lord. You're not going to be a perfect fit, so don't look for that because you will look for the rest of your life. Pursue, take a chance, spend your life enjoying, right? Listen, as we read through all of this stuff, right, these are the things that are, sometimes we like to read this text and to hear this, we may feel a little bit off, right? Like, ah, John, that doesn't sound very spiritual. This is Easter week. We're really supposed to talk about This stuff, this kind of sounds like, and I think that that's where we miss out on the goodness of God. That we have a very, very good God, and sometimes some of the most spiritual things that we can do is to enjoy the very life that God has provided to us and let that produce thanksgiving to the God that gave all of those things. Listen. There's so much more that can be said about life and the life that we live This is one text in the Bible. Don't put the weight for all of Christian instruction on one text or one sermon because you'll be very disappointed. Take this as what it is, a chapter in a book, and where it rubs up against the the pictures or the thoughts that you have of Christ, take that with a grain of salt and pursue those things. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do. Do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to where you are going. What he's saying is the best ideas, the best books that haven't been written, the best friendships that haven't been cultivated, the best advances in whatever field that you have, do you know where they are? They're in the graveyard. There's so much untapped potential there. And what he's saying is, don't let that be the case with you. Don't don't waste your time here on earth. Don't halfway do things. If it's worth doing, give it your best. God didn't half give you breath in your lungs. So don't half give him the work that you do. If it's not worth doing, if it's not worth doing, then... Don't do it, but spend your time and get to work. Whatever your hand finds to do, wherever you are, here's the best way that I know how to do that. Step one, take an assessment of the needs that are around you or the influence that that you have that God has provided to you. Step two, get to work. Get up and do it. 
spend your life on something meaningful. Step three, surround yourself with people that aren't going to let you halfway do things. Surround yourselves with people that aren't just going to gas you up. Surround yourself with friends that are going to look at your work and they're going to say, you can do so much better. Get to work. What he's saying is, look, this is God's gift to us in the life that we have. His common grace across the board for everybody, both Christian and non-Christian. God did not create this world in black and white. God didn't create a tasteless world. God didn't create a world without pleasure. God created a colorful, tasteful world with pleasure so that you and I would enjoy it. Not so that we would enjoy it at the expense of him, which is what the Bible refers to as idolatry, which is the madness that exists in all of our hearts that we all find on in, that it's hard for us to hear these things because we know the sin that exists in our hearts will easily take those things and turn it into our main pursuit. That a spouse is a good thing when we see it as a gift from the Lord. A spouse is a terrible thing when we see it as a replacement for the Lord. A promotion is a good thing when we see it as a gift from the Lord. A promotion is a terrible thing when we see it as the source of our security and joy and acclaim. Children are a gift from the Lord when we see it as a sign of God's unmerited favor and goodness towards us. Children are a terrible thing when we build our lives around them and determine our worth and self-esteem by if we have them or not, of which I've been guilty more than I would like, and on and on and on. Enjoyment is not your God, but it is your fortune. It's a good gift that God provides to us in the life that we have right now. Some of the most spiritual things that you can do is with good friends, enjoying God's good gifts and allowing it to extend this praise to God. Those are two sides of the coin. We don't fixate on death because if we do, it stops us from enjoying the life that we have. Two years ago, when my brother died, it was crazy. It had polar opposite responses in my wife and I. Chandra got up and felt like time short. So I've got to do all the things that the Lord had placed on my heart. And she got up and she went to work. And these last two years for her have been an amazing runway in which God has been honored by the things that she did. Do you know what it did to me? I fixated on it. And the sting and the hurt that I felt, my first thought was, I don't want to feel that anymore. And so here's what I'm going to do. The family that God gave me, I think I'm going to step back. I don't think that I'm going to live and enjoy God's good gifts that way because if I get as close to them as I was to Sam, then one day they're going to die too. And it's going to hurt just as bad. So I have to guard myself. I got to protect that. There was lots of things that Sam hoped that he could do that he didn't do. And I didn't want that sense of failure and not being able to complete what took place. And so I backed up and I stepped off and I fixated on death and in fixating on it, I didn't live the life that God has provided 
for us. Death is in your future. It's not right now. In the present, enjoyment that leads to praise to our good God is your fortune. Enjoy it. However, point three, your fate is uncertain or the timing of your fate. And here's the crazy thing about this text. It's a roller coaster. It takes us from the depths of death on the front end and then we soar upon man. Life is a good thing. And this beautiful life is sandwiched in between death once again. Verse 11. And again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happens to them all. Listen, for man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like the birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Here's what he's saying. You're not dead yet, so live But live in light of the fact that though you're not dead yet, you don't know when you're going to die. It's uncertain. And more than that, verse 11 is all about your preparation, right? The race is not to the swift. The battle's not to the strong. All that that means is that you can prepare all you want to, but the outcomes aren't really in your hands. The fastest Olympian can trip over a hurdle and disqualify themselves and not win. The better NBA team could have their best defender get a technical in game five and get suspended, and y'all know how that goes. All of your preparation and work is no match for the providence of God. When he says time and chance, he's not just saying fate. He's saying, no, there's a God who, according to Ecclesiastes 3, sets the time. There is a God, according to Proverbs 16, controls probability and chance. That our fate is in God's hands, and and none of us know when we're going to go. Which does this? It should create an urgency inside of us to be reminded that although life under the sun, God's great gift is that while we're here, we enjoy the life that we have. There is a day when we will be buried and we will have to give an account for how we spent that life. Hebrews 9 says this, that it is appointed That every man should die once, and then comes what? Judgment. That we do serve a very, very good God that is going to judge each and every one of us on how it is that we lived our lives. 
Did we use every ounce of our being? Did we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength? Did we give him our all? Or did we get so caught up in the enjoyment of life that we longed for that instead of him? And here's what I want you to see. This is not just a... well, I, I did that a few times, John, but, but I really tried to love God more than I loved all, uh, all of those things. God is a perfect judge. The wages of sin, a singular one, is death. Adam and Eve disobeyed God one time, looking for joy in the creation instead of their creator, And the world that we live in now is a result of that one. All of your future acts of obedience cannot go back and erase any past sins. God's going to take the totality of all of our lives and he's going to judge it. And the crazy thing is that when we talk about death, We all have this sense of if God is really going to judge, then I've got to be right with him. I've got to get right with him. When he says here no one knows their time, what he's trying to help us see here is that there's an urgency to make things right. You cannot procrastinate. Trust me. I'm an expert when it comes to procrastination. One of the things that you have to have to be able to effectively procrastinate is a due date. When is it due? If I know when it's due, then I know how much time I have to to put it off. There's a story of a wise man that talked to this young guy, and what he said to this young guy is, hey, here's the wisest way that you can live your life. Do all the stuff that you want to do, And then repent and turn right before the day, or repent from all of the bad things that you did the day before you die. And so the young man said, how do I know when it's the day before I die? And what he said is, exactly. You don't. You don't know. Death is coming for all of us. We can enjoy the life that we have right now, but it doesn't remove the fact that death is still a very real problem that you and I have to wrestle with. And we have to wrestle with it now. There's no time to waste. There's no time to think about it. There's no time to say, I am going to do it then. Listen, death is not around every corner, but it can be around any corner. You don't have time. You have to decide now. And this is where Easter and this is where Christianity shines bright Because it's not just about ideologies, about how to live this life. Christianity is a religion centered around a person 
and two sides of that same coin, his life and his death. Matthew chapter 11, when it talks about Jesus and how he lived his life, he comes into this world, and the funny thing is that when they talk about him, you see the religious rulers of the day say, yeah, well, John came in, and they said that he had a demon because of the stuff that he gave up, and then they looked at Jesus. And Matthew chapter 11, 18 says this, for John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. I think Jesus put Ecclesiastes 9 into practice. So much so that the religious folk of the day looked at him and said, he's having too good of a time, he can't be saved. (laughs) Jesus came and modeled what it was like to enjoy God's good gifts, so much so that the first miracle that he did was not to give sight to the blind, not to make a lame man walk, but a wedding was winding down, and he brought the good wine, the stuff that people can't pronounce the name of. And they looked back and they said, this is great to symbolize. No, Jesus didn't just come to to take our sin away, which he did, but he came to take away our sin so that he could bring us into everlasting joy. There is another side to this coin. But in order to do that, Christianity centers on an event the event of death, that try as hard as you can to forget it, you can't ignore it. It's like termites on the outside of your house. They store it on the outside, and then they come closer and closer and closer until it eats at the foundation and your house crumbles. Death starts at the outside. We hear about it on the news from folks that we don't know and don't care about. And then it comes closer and closer and closer. And we see RIPs of Facebook friends that we say, oh, I knew him at one point. And then it comes closer and it comes to our family. And it really does a work inside of us until ultimately it will come to all of us. And enjoy life all you want to in the meantime. But one day we all will stand in front of God and have to give an account for how it is that we lived our life. And one sin is enough to disqualify you. Which means that the common ground that all of us have is not just that we'll all die, but death is going to defeat us all because none of us have what it is that we need to stand before God. But God shows the riches of his kindness towards us. He gave us his son. I've been a parent for six days. And I wouldn't give Ava up for none of (laughs) y'all. Jesus 
God sent his son to live a perfect life, void of sin. Jesus didn't deserve death at all. If the wages of sin is death, then the way that Jesus lived his life, he never should have died. He should have still been living, but he came, and do you know what he did? He doesn't just uphold the way that we should have lived life, but he upends death. He defeats the Goliath. He defeats the Goliath that had every one of us running scared. God's son takes our sin. Of all those that he chose before him, he takes the sins of the world. And he goes to a cross and dies the death of the worst criminal. And he gets buried in the grave. And it looks as if death has defeated him. Until Easter morning. He gets up from the grave showing this. That God had accepted the sacrifice of him for us. Jesus was our substitute. He took our place when we owed God our lives. We had a debt that we couldn't pay. Jesus pays that debt for us. Not just so that we could go free out of a courtroom. But so that we could go free out of a courtroom into God's family. At the end of John 20, Jesus doesn't say, go tell my disciples that I live. What he says is, run, go and tell my brothers. We're brought into God's family. This is what the gospel does for all of us, those that have failed to live our lives like we should. Jesus comes, takes our death in order to give us life. And all that we have to do to accept that gift is to forfeit control, is to say, Lord, the life that you gave me is no longer my life. It's yours. Do with it as you will. Let me turn from my sin. Repentance is us turning from our sins, the things that we love, and turning to our God. That's it. So we agree with what the writer says in Ecclesiastes, that our fate is not in our hands. We willingly place it into somebody else's hands, somebody's nail-scarred hands, somebody's hands who experienced death but beat death in a way that none of us could. That's the beauty of the gospel. It is centered around the event that Jesus took on death and got up from the grave. And here's what it does as I close. It frees us from the fear of death. Hebrews Chapter 2 says one of the reasons why Christ died on the cross for our sins was to free all of us from this lifelong fear that we all had of death. That death was our destination. But when Christ died, he turned death into a detour. Death is just a doorway to find ourselves into the family of God. We go through it. We don't stop at it. Death changes the way. The gospel changes the way we view our family that is gone. 
1 Thessalonians 4 says that because Christ raised from the dead, the beauty is that each week that we come in here, each week that we celebrate baptism, we are acknowledging the fact that one day as Christians, all of us will go into the grave. But make sure that casket's not closed too tight because one day all of us are going to get up and we are going to go. And death becomes the doorway through which we can see God. And here's what that practically looks like. Chandra and I have good friends that um, really served as surrogate parents when we were in Denton. Um, A few weeks ago, as we preached on death here at the church, I get down from the stage and I get a text from her and she says, hey, I just want you to know that my dad passed away this morning. So as she's sitting at the bedside with her 97-year-old dad, that surrendered his life to to the Lord years ago? And is it clear that he's preparing to take his last breath? She holds him by the hand, and with tears in her eyes, she says, Dad, you've lived your life here well. Go and meet your Savior. And she said minutes later, he took his last breath, and he was with the Lord, and it hurts Death still stings, but because of what Christ has done, we grieve, not as those without hope. That even as we mourn the loss of those that we've lost, even if we don't have a new life to rejoice in, we're reminded that those tears of joy are mixed with tears of sadness. Don't you want that comfort? Don't you want to feel that for your family that will go one day? Don't you want that for your friends that will find themselves in that box six feet under the earth one day? That comfort is available to them through the gospel. If you want that comfort, pray like crazy that God will save their souls. And do everything that you can to convince them about the goodness of God. Tell them about their sin. But don't stop there. Tell them about a Savior that's greater than all of that sin. If you're here and you're not a Christian, Charles Spurgeon on this text said, Don't be too annoyed by your friends that constantly come at you with the good news of Jesus because one day there will be a time where that good news won't matter. You won't hear it anymore. He said for those that read their Bible and say it's dry, it's hard for me to take in there, he says don't don't be concerned. One day there's going to be a day where the promises of the Bible, you won't have any access to them. Those of you that are frustrated by long prayers, he says, don't be concerned. There's going to be a day where all the prayers that one prays won't matter. But that doesn't have to be the case. There is hope because of what Christ has done. He took on death. So now as we look at death, We can be reminded of our Savior 
that beat death. And we know that it's nothing for us to fear. And so I think that this gives new meaning for all of us that are Christian to Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. There's a book written years ago that says this. The title of the book was The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. And do you know what that one thing was that he lists through the book? Evangelize lost people. There is work for all of us that have put our trust in the Lord. And my prayer is that we as a church would be reminded of the goodness of God towards us and that we would be eager to save as many souls as we can, that there would be an earnestness about us, that although we enjoy life, there's a seriousness because we're reminded and we don't forget the future that the rest of the world has. I'll close here with another quote from Charles Spurgeon, and it's not as lighthearted as parts of the sermon, but I think it is a great reminder, not just for the non-Christian on Easter that Christ had died to save you, but for the Christian that Christ has saved you and left you here so that you would go and save others. And Charles Spurgeon says this concerning our earnestness. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned or unprayed for. The same spirit that raised God from the dead dwells in all of us that have put our trust in him. And my prayer is that we as a church would work with all of our heart, not just to make sure that this room here is full, but that heaven is full. And on our way there, as we enjoy God's good gifts, we take as many people with us as we can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness towards us. We're grateful for the fact that you left us here to enjoy uh, this world. Father, I pray that as we enjoy the gifts that you have, that we enjoy it responsibly um, with an eye to using all of those gifts to point people towards you. Father, remind us of our fate that one day that we'll die, but remind us of the joy that comes from knowing that our death is not the end of the story, but it's the beginning of a new one that was purchased for us by Christ. Lord, if there's anybody in here that doesn't know Jesus or is doubting what he has done or feels as if tomorrow will be a better time, Lord, I pray that you would implore them, that you would remind them that we don't have that day promised, but we do have right now, we have your gracious offer for salvation. Help us to take a hold of that with all of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.